Well, thank you for being here today. Take your Bibles and make your way to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. How many of you remember this? There's a few more of those back there. Um, that, if you didn't grab one of these, get one on the way out. We're in this middle section, and that's where we're going to be. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at together today. Titled this sermon, uh, Humility in the Flesh. Uh, humility with skin on. <laughs> and of course, Paul is going to tell us about Jesus being this example of humility. Um, Watchman Nee, who was a Chinese evangelist, and he tells a story in his book, The Normal Christian Life, which I highly recommend. If you've not read that, you really should get your copy. You can get it at Gotwals for pennies on a dollar. But it's a Christian classic. And uh, he, he writes in there, he tells the story of a Christian um, that he knew in China. And this guy was a poor rice farmer, and his fields were high up in the mountain. And every day he pumped water into the paddies of new rice. And every morning he returned to find that a neighbor who lived down the hill had opened the dikes on his fields surrounding his fields to let the water fill his own. You getting a picture of what's happening? This guy's stealing the guy's water so that his rice fields aren't going to grow. For a while, the Christian ignored the injustice, but at last he became desperate. He met and prayed with other Christians and came up with this solution. Um, the next day, the Christian farmer rose early in the morning and first filled his neighbor's fields. Then he attended to his own. Is that what you would have done? Watchman Nee tells how the neighbors subsequently repented of all of his sin, not just the sin of the water theft, and became a follower of Jesus. His unbelief was overcome by a genuine demonstration of a Christian's humility and Christ-like character. Yeah, wow is right. I uh, heard a great quote this week from my son, actually. I uh, wish he would have shared it with me last week, but it was so good I couldn't not share it from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Right? Humility doesn't put you down in the sense that you become less. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it rather is thinking of yourself less. Does that make sense? I thought it was a great quote. So uh, what we're going to look at today is probably in these verses, specifically to verses 6 through 11, we're only going to get through 8 today, is probably the most complete doctrinal treatise on the person of Christ. Or when, when you hear that word Christ, I want you to start reading King Jesus in there. Christ means king, and it's important that we understand that. It's the most complete doctrinal treatise on the person of King Jesus. It's called Christology. It's the study of the Messiah, our King, and it's easy to get caught up in it. And in, and in some sense, we should get caught up. This is amazing stuff we're going to look at today. But to what end? That's the question today. To what end? To the end that the writer intends, and that is both the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit. And here it is, that this glorious story of our King all serves as an example 
Don't miss this. This whole thing is an example of we are, that we are to copy, to embrace and adopt as our own attitude in all of our earthly relationships with each other. So all this um, deep doctrine we're about to engage in, which is amazing. It's just, it's so rich. It's for the purpose of an example that we are to adopt, an attitude that we need to have. J.A. Moyer, in his book that I've been using, um, it's called uh, The Message of Philippians. It's an excellent, excellent resource. Here's what he said in there. He said, the message of, uh, uh, he says, the story of the cross of Christ is told in each of the four Gospels. But the meaning of the cross is the preoccupying theme of the epistles. Isn't that interesting? But the present passage, what we're looking at today, uniquely unfolds the cross as seen through the eyes of the crucified. This is Jesus' understanding of it. And it allows us, therefore, to enter into the mind of Christ. We do well to remember that this privilege is given to us not to satisfy our curiosity, but rather to reform our lives. Isn't that good? So with that in mind, let's look to this text today. If you have your own copy of Scripture, and I hope that you do, you need to bring that with you, not on your phone, but an actual physical copy. Let's look at this passage together today. And I'm going to go back to verse 1 by way of context, and I'm going to read through verse 11. But we will cover 9 through 11 next week. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, and if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Paul says this, fulfill my joy. That's the command. By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. See how many times the word one shows up there. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you, not look, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others, putting other people before yourself. And then in our text today, here's this grand example. First, there's a command, and this is the command. And then we have this grand example of Christ himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, in King Jesus. And here's the mind. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And that's important too. Now here's the backside of his obedience and his humility. Therefore, because he did this and adopted this mindset, God also has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that means master, that King Jesus is the owner master 
to the glory of God the Father. Amen? I want to share with you today um, this concept, this idea, as we carefully explore Paul's beautiful portrait of humility in the flesh. I want to share with you what that looks like and do my best to unpack this with you today. And all of this runs towards a brief conclusion. The conclusion is where we're going to ask some hard questions and apply this to ourselves. So with that in mind, let's look at, first of all, I've broken this up actually into three main points. The third you're going to get next week. The first main point is the exhortation. What is Paul exhorting us to do in verse number five? Um, the, what, what Paul is actually saying here is, is this idea. Let this mind be in you. Have this attitude. That word let is, an, is, is, a, is a word that means allow. It means to embrace. This is something that we are supposed to do. Here's an active, uh, our active part and responsibility here. Let this mind. That word literally means to continually embrace this attitude. It has the idea of continuity. Continually embrace this attitude, this way of thinking and living. Filter, listen to this, filter all relational experience through this perceptual set, i.e. this mental filter. Let me put a pin in that right there. What that means is when your partner is driving you crazy or your children are, are, are making you angry, here's the mindset you need to adopt. Here's the attitude you need to embrace. And we have the ability to embrace that through the Holy Spirit. He literally says this, and it, it's the Greek word for neo, and it means to have this attitude. Let me read this definition. It means to set one's mind or heart upon something. You ever set your heart on something? I remember when Anna was a little girl, a very little girl, toddler, older toddler. Whatever commercial came on TV with whatever toy was out, she would say, I want that for my birthday. And, and Anna was a force of nature. She would set her heart on things. And I mean, and, 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 and I witnessed this one day and my wife said, okay, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, no, it's not okay, not okay. She's not getting that for her birthday. So in the next commercial, I was going to show my wife how to parent this girl who set her heart on things too, too hard. And she really did. Her whole, her whole growing up years, that was an issue with her. And the next commercial came out. She goes, I want that for my birthday. I said, no, you're not getting that for your birthday. Oh, my word. I mean, I never heard such come out of a kid, and it wasn't very long when I heard this coming out of my mouth. Okay, okay, you can get that for your birthday, <laughs> right? But that's what this word, let this mind be in you. Set your heart on this, not on the next newest toy, but let this be where your heart is set. Let this be your attitude. Um, um, to have it, it means to have understanding, to, to be wise, to direct one's mind to a thing and to seek and to strive for it. The idea is not to just give a casual thought to something, or I should feel this way or think this way, but rather um, thinking that involves the affections, listen to this, as, and the will as well as reason. So it's not just thinking about something, it's deciding in advance, this is what I'm going to do, this is how I'm going to be, this is how I'm going to look at myself in relation to these people who are driving me nuts that God put in my life. Can anybody here relate to that? Amen. We all need this. 
Um, it refers to the basic orientation, bent, and thought patterns of one's mind. Y'all got some patterns of thought in your mind? Not just to the intellect itself, but the way that you think, the patterns in which you think. Now, this is interesting. And William and uh, Andy, I don't know where Ben is. He should be in here, but I don't see him. Um, this is why we study grammar in Latin as well as English. Look at this next point that comes up in, up here. It'll be on the screen. I'll put this on the screen. I want you to write it down if you can. I find this so interesting. Uh, well, Paul is announcing this in the present tense. And it's the continual present tense. So he is calling for a continuous action or lifestyle. So tense is important in verbs, but something we also study in Latin is the voice. This is not the passive voice of something that should happen to you. This is the active voice. It means something that you should go and do. The subject is doing the action. Who is the subject? It's all, it's you all. It's the plural second person you. Um, in the South, we say you all. And if we really mean everybody, we say all y'all. <laughs> you ever heard that? All y'all. What Paul is saying here is all y'all need to be adopting this mindset continually for the rest of your life. And then, uh, which what the active voice means is a personal decision of the will. You need to choose this. And you need to choose it by yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit that's in you. And it's in the imperative mood. And the imperative is another word for a command. Paul's saying, I'm commanding all y'all to embrace this attitude continually. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus had it. And because he did, you can have it. And because you can, you must. Are you with me? This morning, I want to make sure we're understanding that. And Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians, he says, We have, and we have, Paul said, the mind of Christ. So it's not something that's outside of our reach. Paul would even say it to the church at Corinth. We have the mind of Christ. Tap into it, embrace it. It's something that we have, but then we also have a responsibility to foster that attitude. Am I making sense this morning? I, I want to get to the next part, which is the main body of, of, of Paul's teaching today. So that was, <clears throat> that first part there was um, the exhortation, the call to action. The second part is the explanation. And then next week we'll deal with the exaltation of Christ. But this part comes in verses 6 through 8. And, and I, and I want to add this, this, this qualifier to this point. It is the explanation of our example. And our example is King Jesus, Christ Jesus or King Jesus, right? So Paul's going to use this doctrinal, this heavy, juicy doctrinal teaching as an illustration. And you know, we pastors do the opposite. We'll preach something doctrinal and then we'll use practical illustrations to illustrate it. Paul preached something practical, and he's using doctrine to illustrate it. I find that very interesting. Um, it was actually, here's what, here's what um, we know in some part. What we know about this middle section starting in verse 6, 6 through 8, 6 through 11 actually where we are now. It, was at, it actually became a first century, an early church hymn or song. Um, it was very possibly, we don't know this for sure, but it was very possibly written by uh, an, 
early Jewish community in Jerusalem. And they believe, historians believe, that, that the earliest Christians, think Acts 2, this, this doctrinal truth about Jesus, this section in verses 6 um, through 11, was actually sung by the earliest Christians, the first Christians, as they took communion. Isn't that interesting? And I had an a, a epiphany when I read that. And, I'm a, and they're not here, so I don't know. Tom, you're here, so you'll have to carry this message. But I thought, I, I wanted to give a challenge to our worship team um, to actually take this section and put it to music. We've done that in some of the Psalms, word for word. I think this needs to be rewritten not, not the words, but put to some music so that we can re-sing this and join our fellow first century Christians. Wouldn't that be cool? So that's what this is. Um, and so because of that, because this was something that was uh, very common and normative in, in Jerusalem and in the early first church, which is where Paul would have started, he very possibly and probably carried this song to all the churches he started so imagine as he's reading this letter and saying, here's the example that you need to follow with, with Jesus. And as he breaks into this hymn, they're like, oh, we know that one. We know that song. Have you ever done that? Oh, I know that song. It was familiar to them, but now he's using it as an example, not just teaching about who Jesus is, but he's saying, look, look deeper at the humility that's involved in our king. That's Paul's point. And we don't want to... We don't want to lose that. There's a cool graphic that's going to come up here on the screen. I was trying to find a way um, to put that in your outlines, and, and I, I did not find, obviously, a good way to do that. If, um, I may, I will, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll go ahead and post that on our church Facebook page so that you can see it. Um, this, this kind of gives you the idea of this text, okay? So verses 6 through 8, it's almost like a V, like a V here. Verses 6 through 8, it starts with Jesus before he takes on human form, his preexistent glory as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was God from eternity past with the Father. And this is a great teaching on that. And then we deal with the humiliation of our King. Have you ever been humiliated in your life? And when I say, have you ever been humiliated, what, what kind of comes to your mind? Hmm? Embarrassment or shame. Um, that has happened to me on numerous occasions. That's a great way to get to know somebody. Ask them, what's the most embarrassing thing you ever did? Uh, one of my friends, well, used to be a brother in the church and moved away. He told him, I asked that question getting to know him. And he said, well, one time uh, my neighbor's wife came out. And I asked her, when's your baby due? And she said, I'm not pregnant. That's humiliating. It's bad. One time I was speaking at a homeschool conference of 200 homeschool mothers. And I did a stupid thing. I stayed up the entire night before. This pastor friend who I was staying at his house, he, gave, he loaned me a book. He said, I can't give it to you. It's my only copy. And I got to reading it, and it just, you ever get your nose in something, you just can't put it down? It was one of those deals. But because I come, and there was a coffee maker in my room, so I drank coffee all night long and read this book. So I'm, I'm tired, I'm way over caffeinated, and I got way too much liquid in me. 
And so we get into the first session of the morning and, and that coffee takes over and I need a bathroom break. So I look at my notes and we do this little thing with table time where they get together and ask questions. So I skipped ahead and I, I gave the, all these 200 homeschool moms their little table time. And there was a bathroom right behind the stage. So I jetted out there and uh, use the restroom and I come back in and all these mothers give me a standing ovation. I'm like, and then the guy in the back says, your mic was on the whole time. <laughs> I've never been, they invited me to come back the next year. I turned it down. I could not face those ladies again after that. That's humiliation, right? It, it means, you know, I thought I was here and then, then I was humbled by that action. And I've always been terrified by that ever since then. Um, matter of fact, that's why you'll, you oftentimes will see me put this mic on right before I speak. As I will not put it on until right before I speak. <laughs> ever since then, so it's, 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 I don't ever want that to happen again. So, but, but Jesus himself, think of that idea of humiliation. He was here and he was, to be humiliated means to be brought low. So this whole text for this morning takes us from where Jesus was and we see the progression of him being humbled and brought low even to the very point at the end of this thing, at the bottom of this V, Jesus is brought so low, he's brought not only to death, submits himself to death, but death on a cross. It's the humiliation of King Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at um, today. So in this graphic, um, it begins... Um, it begins with Jesus, I call it BB. You know what BB stands for? Before Bethlehem. Where was Jesus before Bethlehem? Before he shows up on this earth. Yeah, he's in heaven. And, but it ends, notice it, it ends with him back in heaven. He's in the presence of the Father, second person of the Trinity. He, he, he experiences this humiliation, this humbling of his own choice. And then he's exalted. And he's back. So you see how that V works there. He's back where he came from. And by the way, how many of you ever heard the old saying, what goes up, what? Must come down. But you should know by now, in the kingdom, everything's upside down. And it's backwards. It's the opposite with Christ. It's not what goes up, must come down, but rather what comes down must go up. And it's consistent with the teaching of Scripture in James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will do what? lift you up. He will exalt you. So through humility is the path to exaltation. And that's part of the example that Paul is giving us here. So don't let that be lost on you. And in between, uh, it's the in-between part that is our example to be embraced here. Um, and that's what we're going to look at. So today we're going to look at the humiliation of King Jesus through verses 6 through 8. Next week we'll explore our King's exaltation as we, experiencing, as we experience him by taking communion together. So here's, our, here's letter A. Uh, letter A, our king's pre-existence. Jesus existed before earth. Verse 6. I'm going to read this in the, in the Christian Standard Bible. I love how it's stated. It's a little clearer. It says this, Who, existing in the form of God, this is talking about Jesus, so he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. You see it up there in the New King James. So what it's saying here is that Jesus existed. 
he existed where it says they're being in the form of God. Um, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped for his own advantage. Now, that word form of God means one who possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God himself. So in the English language, it, you notice that up there it says that being, who being in the form of God, that's called a to be verb. Right? Or, or we sometimes call in English grammar a being verb. It literally means to be. Now, in Greek, they had two words for this. One is just a normal to be, but then there was the enhanced or what they called the superlative form uh, of that word. And it, it literally meant to really and truly be something. Like, there's no wiggle room. I need you to understand. It, it wasn't just like this thing. Really, He really, truly was the very nature of God himself. And that's, that's the verb, the stronger form of the verb that's used here. Um, our English word form itself can be misleading because it suggests a shape or an outward appearance. But the Greek word translated form, which is morphe, which we get our word uh, metamorphosis. Meta means to change. Morphosis means your core nature or value. Your core instincts. Because you think about it, a butterfly goes in, this metamorphosis happens, it comes out, doesn't look anything like a butterfly. <laughs> its core nature has changed. So it's that word morphine. It refers not so much to outward appearance, but to the essential nature of something or someone. So when it says in the form of God, it speaks of Jesus' essence or nature as God. And whereas it says equality with God, speaks of the glories or the rights of God. Did Jesus have all the rights of God? Yeah, absolutely. And together, the two expressions are some of the strongest expressions of Christ's deity in the entire Bible. So here's the conclusion of this, this concept here. Because we're starting with, we said, we need to, Paul said, let me show you where Jesus was <laughs> and where he ended. Jesus was truly very God of very God, as the creed says. And as such, he had so many rights and just expectations of his creation. But listen to this. He didn't hang on to them. He didn't demand them. In humility, and this is the next section here in a second, he let them go. He let go of those expectations and rights. <clears throat> have, you ever, have you ever had this thought or, or made this statement? Well, if I was God, you ever done that? Normally, nothing good comes after that statement. Right? I remember when we would get our poor mother so in a frazzle as naughty children. She would say, if I were God, some of you wouldn't be here right now. And I'm certain I was one of those someone. Right? It's a good thing you're not God. Why do we say that? If I was God. Jesus was God. And he had all the rights and privileges and proper expectations of his own creation that came with that. And can you imagine if he came to earth in his full unveiled form? He could, have, he, could have, he could have and should have demanded all of that. But he didn't. The Bible says he humbled himself. Paul describes our king's actions in two ways. There's two things he did from this high lofty position. The first thing is that he emptied himself. And the second thing is he humbled himself. And we're going to look at those in order here 
in just a second. But here's what I need you to understand. They were both done voluntarily out of obedience and deference to the Father. Nobody. Can anybody force God to do anything? No. And if you believe that, you've got some bad doctrine. Nobody forces. God's God. He does what he wants to. The Bible's full of those statements, stated over and over in many different creative ways. Nobody forces God to do anything. And yet, here's the second person of the Trinity, in deference and obedience, voluntarily empties himself and humbles himself. So let's look at what that looks like. Letter B is our, this is our king's humble renunciation of those rights in the first part of verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation, taken on the form of a slave. And to CSB it says, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. And by the way, don't miss that word form. It's the same word in the form of God, the very essence or nature of. Right? So he literally empties himself of something. And how does he do it? By assuming, by embracing the form of a bondservant, which is a cleaned up word for slave. Now this word to empty here, it literally means, this is important we understand this word. It means to deprive something of its proper place and use. Here's what it doesn't. It doesn't mean that Jesus emptied himself of, of, of being God. He could no more do that than you and I can empty ourselves of being human. He was truly God and truly man. He didn't give up his deity. He gave up the rights that were attached to it. Are you with me? He didn't give up his crown. He gave up the rights that were attached to that crown so he could have this attitude of humility. It was a voluntarily, it was, it was a voluntary giving up Listen, of the exercise of his kingship, his lordship. And listen, listen to this statement. This hit me. I wrote this down and it, I just really had to stop and think about it. Listen to this. Jesus owned the people who nailed him to the cross. Are you hearing me? He owned the people who nailed him to the cross. He grew the tree that would make the cross that he would be placed upon. That's a Selah moment in the song. We need to stop and consider that. But because of his renunciation of those rights and his humility, we were not destroyed. He willingly laid himself down. And here's the thing. There's a lot of debate. Oh, my word. My brain is so full today of stuff that I read about this particular phrase. Well, what did he empty himself of? Was he really God? How much of, of his deity did he empty himself of? All of this stuff. And we get into some crazy theology that is really not helpful for our daily lives. So here's what I want to say to that. He did not empty himself of his deity. He is truly God, truly man. And I want you to notice this in the text itself. Paul does not let us get into the theological weeds here. Because you've got to look at the very next relative phrase. Paul says, yep, he emptied himself, but move on to this next statement and see what I'm talking about. He doesn't let us get into the questioning, oh, well, what did he empty himself? This is not for our curiosity. This is so that we would embrace that same mindset. So Paul moves us right along into what, how he did it. Notice what it says there. He emptied himself by assuming the form 
And that's that same word, metamorphe, the form of a slave. Now, I want to make this statement. This is so important. <clears throat> we should not be focusing so much on what he emptied himself of, but rather what he emptied himself into. Now, come on. There it is. It's on the screen because I want you to jot that down. Be careful here not to spend all of your time trying to figure out what Jesus emptied himself of because that's not the actual point here. The point is, what did he empty himself into? He empties himself of these rights, his lordship as God. Imagine this, the king of all, all creation, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, regardless of what the cults were trying to tell you. There is no A in front of that. It wasn't A God, it's God. That's a bold-faced lie, and they know it. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then this statement in John 1, 3. All things. How many things, church? All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's Jesus himself. The word is the, he's the agent. of He's the creator. Right? And he empties himself of, of all of that rights that comes with that, and he's poured into the very form, essence, nature of a slave. And what's the biggest determining factor of a slave, a characteristic? They have no rights. Do you see what Paul's saying is here? All rights. Pours himself, empties himself, and pours them into no rights. Are you, are you tracking with me this morning? Super important you understand this. Because it's going back to unity. All right? So here, here's, here's letter C. Our king's humble incarnation. Now we're getting to the what we're talking about here, and this is the last part of verse 7. It says, and coming in the likeness of men. And coming in the likeness of men. And um, taking on, in the CSB, taking on the likeness of men, and beginning of verse 8, and when he had come as a man in his eternal form. So he comes as a man in his eternal form. Listen to this. He who always was God, think about this, pre-existent, he who always was God became something he was not. What was that? One of us. This is, this is called the mystery of the incarnation. Um, by the way, incarnation literally means enfleshment. God, God, second person of the Trinity, God wrote himself into the physical story of his creation. And became a part of it. Not just a part. He became the part of the rescue of his creatures. That's crazy. That is humility in the flesh. Jesus writes himself into the story by becoming one of his own creation. And this is where uh, we should be pondering this stuff. And our, our, the puny hard drives of our brain should crash right here. If you're doing it right. Because here's what. The very essence of God. That the entire universe. Cannot even hold. Is now confined. To the womb of a Judean teenage girl. How's that work? A lot of emptying. Oh my. King of all. The slave of all. That's humble. That's humility in the flesh. 
And it's interesting, these two fellows will appreciate this after going through logic with me this year. Um, the word that Paul uses comes in the likeness of men, that word likeness, guys. Um, it's not morphe, which means by very nature, uh, it's the word schema. Does that sound familiar in logic, schema? <clears throat> and why? Because it leaves room for there to be more to the story, more than meets the eye. So, preacher, what are you saying about schema? These fellows know. So when we're working in, in intermediate logic, we have these long arguments. But we'll take an entire statement, um, the sky is blue, and we'll just schematize it, which is another word for abbreviate it, with the letter B. B for blue. Sky is blue. Uh, and, and we'll do that through these whole arguments so that we can work through the logical um, uh, factors and comparisons of it. And I know it's probably over most of you, but that word schematize, if I said to William and Andy, I want you to schematize this argument, I would give them usually a set of three statements that, that forms a, a logical argument, and they would schematize it into three letters. Are those letters the statements? No. There's a whole lot more to the letter, uh, uh, what did I say? B for B for blue. There's a whole, that word B for blue represents a whole lot that you can't see with just a letter B. Are you with me? That's why the word schematize, schema is used here. It's that Jesus coming in the likeness of man, there's a whole lot more to him than you can recognize. Because he looked just like a man, but there was so much more behind him. Truly God, truly man. Isn't that cool, William and Andy, how, you, how our logic comes into that? And even these very Greek words. I, th I thought that was neat. Jesus was God. Listen to this. Listen to this, guys. Jesus was God schematized as a man. Whew. That's amazing. If you don't understand that, come hang out with me in the fall, and we'll go through that logic together. You'll love it. What is that? That's humility in the flesh. That is, hum that is humility with skin on. And then letter D is our king's humble crucifixion. Our king's humble crucifixion. The Bible says he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Boy, you talk about humble. He started out as the king of everything, ends up on a cross. Now, be careful here. When we read obedient unto death, the English grammar wants to take us to the idea that he was obeying death. Because it kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? Obedient unto death. But here's the reality. The Greek, the Greek language and the grammar here does not allow for that whatsoever. Um, it doesn't let us do that. Instead, um, the Greek requires this statement. Obedience as far as or right up to the point of death. What's the point? And I think this is on the screen. Death was the mode, not the master of his obedience. He obeyed through death. Death did not master him. He mastered death. It was his choice. What did he say on that cross? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He mastered death. He chose when to die. Death did not master him. He mastered it. So death was the mode, not the master of his obedience here. It's really important to understand that. Again, voluntary. Jesus chose this through his humility. Even death on a cross. Here's a crazy thought, but it's true. The incarnate 
became a curse. God in flesh, the incarnate God, becomes a curse. The Bible says in Galatians 3.13, which is a direct quote from the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's why in the Old Testament, you know how they executed people? Stoning them. Someone was really super, super bad. You know what they did? They hung them, and it was rare. Rare, 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 rare. And they almost never did that to Israelites. They did that to their enemies. Because it was a curse to hang on a tree. And notice what it says. He humbled himself. This is amazing. It was done by the will and the consent of King Jesus. Listen to me. He's the king. He doesn't have to. He could demand, I love that song, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set them free. He could have done, he was the king. He even prays in the garden of Gethsemane. If there's any way, let this cup pass. I don't want to drink this cup of your wrath, Dad. Father, in heaven, I, don't, this, I know what this is. Is there another way? It's the only time. The father never answers the son affirmatively in prayer. No. No other way. From before the foundation of the earth, this was God's plan. That the son would humble himself in voluntary obedience to the father. You know, there. again, I got this from this book. Let me just share this with you. Because it's something that's always bothered me about the Old Testament sacrificial system. And if you remember it, the Jewish dad would bring this animal, usually a lamb, sometimes something else. And he would place his hands on the head of that animal. And the sins of him and any of his family that were not yet adults have passed through the bar mitzvah at age 12. Their sin would be passed on to that animal. Y'all remember this? So, and then the animal would be killed. And their sins, the blood of that animal would be in the place of the man. So here's what, here's what uh, Moise says in here. He says, whenever a sinner brought his animal to the altar and laid his hand on his, the beast's head, the lesson was plain. This animal stands in my place. This creature bears my sin. Yet the substitute, listen to this, yet the substitution was incomplete. For the central citadel of sin, the will was left unrepresented in the uncomprehending, unconsenting animal. What's that mean? That lamb had no choice. And if that lamb had any idea of what was fixing to happen, he'd got out of dodge, buddy. I know lambs aren't fond of biting. They would have bit and kicked and got out of there if he knew that that sharp blade of the priest was fixing to cut his jugular wide open and all of his life's blood to be caught in a bucket. That lamb had no choice. It was dumb. Jesus was not that way. He goes on to say this. Isaiah foresaw that only a perfect man could be the perfect substitute. And that at the heart of this perfection lay a will delighting to do the will of God. Isn't that something? Jesus' will was engaged here. He willingly became came voluntarily obedient to death, even death on the cross. He was the one thing that all of those lambs, bulls, and goats could never be in the Old Testament, that picture in him. And that was he had 
volition. He had a choice and he chose to further his humiliation and die for the sins of people like you and I. How humble. That's humility in the flesh. <clears throat> During uh, some unsettled days in ancient Rome, a slave heard that his master's name was on the liquidation list. He quickly put on his master's cloak and quietly awaited the arrival of the political butchers. When they found the slave dressed in his master's clothing, they beat him to death, supposing him to be the master. Likewise, the master of the universe, Jesus Christ, took upon himself the cloak of our humanity. And the death he endured is the death we deserved. And through death, we have been spared. Through his death, you and I have been spared. So what's the conclusion of this whole thing? Well, we've got to go back to Paul's primary purpose for this massively glorious treatise on the humiliation of our King Jesus. What is all of this deep and disturbing doctrine to do with us, or maybe I should say in us? What are we supposed to do with this, Paul? Why this description of he's here, he goes all the way down to as low as you can go here to be cursed and hang on a tree. What am I supposed to do with that? What's your point? It's an example of the depths of the humility of King Jesus, listen to me now, that you and I have access to through the Holy Spirit. That's the humility you and I are supposed to wear. You starting to feel this now? That's how you're supposed to act when people you're in a relationship are driving you nuts. You're not supposed to go high, you go low. You go low. It's not that you think less of yourself, you just think of yourself less. This is the, and if Jesus can do it, and he gives us the, that very same empowerment through the Holy Spirit, I have no excuse. Charles Spurgeon said this, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. Here's the, here's the point. You and I are never going to be called to be more humble than Jesus was. That making any sense? Let me tell you something right now. This will fix your marriage. This will fix your relationships. And, and here's, did you notice in here? It has nothing to do with the other person. It all has to do with you. Let me ask you a question as we... Head to close today. What's the opposite of humility? That's a fair question. What's the opposite of humility? Pride or arrogance. Yeah, absolutely. John Calvin sums up the practical application of our text this way. He says this, Since then the Son of God descended from so great a height. Listen to what he says now. How unreasonable that we, who are nothing, should be lifted up with pride. What did Calvin say in a, in a long way? Let me condense it for you. Who do you think you are? 
Who do I think I am? We think far too much of ourselves and far too little of our king. And that's what gets us twisted up with the people that God has put in our lives. But the fact is, we're going to fight pride all of our lives, aren't we? But we got tools to do it with. In 1985, a Spanish bullfighter made a tragic mistake. He thrust that thin sword that goes into the spinal column of that bull to finish him off. One final time into the bull, and the bull collapsed. Thinking that the bull was dead, the bullfighter turned to the crowd to acknowledge the applause and accolade. But the bull was not dead. It rose and lunged at the back of the unsuspecting matador, piercing his heart with its horn. Pride's just like that. Just when we think we've conquered it, and we turn to accept the congratulations of the crowd, pride stabs us in the back. Anybody ever been there? It, and listen to this. Pride won't be dead before we are. And in this section of Scripture, Paul is going to teach us to fight pride by focusing on the example of what the Savior did by leaving the glory of heaven and coming to die for people like you and I for sins that he never committed. Have that same mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard another as more important than themselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Listen to me. That's the way towards unity and harmony in our homes, in our churches, and dare I say, even in our nation. This was the mind of Christ. He looked at himself at the Father, and at us. And for obedience sake and for sinner's sake, he held nothing back. Here's my concluding question. So how dare we not do the same? How dare we? That's your response to the gospel truth today. Go low. When we humble ourselves in obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit, in due time, God will exalt us. The way up is the way down. Trust Him. Swallow that pride. Be humble. And watch what God can do.